Well, good morning and a brand new service and series we are starting this morning as we look at a series that we've entitled 10. And of course, we are referring none other to the 10 commandments. So hopefully you're in your Bibles at Exodus chapter 20. And let us begin with verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, we could jump into each of the Ten Commandments over the next ten weeks. But verses 1 and 2 tells me that there's a backstory narrative that comes and plays a huge role in the leading to this point. That we need to understand what God did before we can truly understand His uh, giving of the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel. So we need the backstory. We need to ramp up until this moment. And we will do so this morning by starting in chapter 1 over the next several weeks and working our way up to chapter 20 so we understand why God is introducing these Ten Commandments in the manner in which He is. We need to understand why God brought them out of the land of Egypt and why He brought them out of the house of bondage to give them these Ten Commandments. One commentator wrote this, The opening two chapters of Exodus, covering several centuries, provide an indispensable introduction to the plot which unfolds in the rest of the book. We need to know what happened and why it happened. We need to know what God did through this man named Moses. You know, uh, I think we need to be reminded of true biblical accounts uh, rather than relying on Hollywood to communicate their accuracy in biblical accounts such as Noah. Yeah, they got that right, didn't they? Wow, talk about missing the mark completely in accuracy. I think we need to be reminded that Moses didn't look like Charlton Heston. And now in a few months, do you know they're going to release a new movie about Moses? And do you know who plays Moses? Batman. Christian Bale. So Moses meets Batman. The sequel to follow. We need to be reminded of events that have taken place up until this point. So let's backtrack to Exodus chapter 1 in a message that we've entitled Persecution. We begin with the nation of Israel under an enormous weight of persecution there in the land of Egypt. Now, persecution is a reality. Now, you may say, how is it a reality? Well, in our nation, it doesn't resemble the, way, the manner in which it does around the world. Persecution is happening to believers in Jesus Christ all around the world. Do you know that? And I tell you that we see different things happening here in the United States that would indicate to me that persecution is going to happen here also. Now, it may not be in the form of physical persecution, but it may but we definitely see that it's going to be much more difficult to be a Christian as time goes on. The steps of persecution have been well documented through the history of the church. Persecution just doesn't start overnight. It, it gradually escalates. And 
there are definite warning signs that we should be looking for in the five steps to persecution. Again, well documented by studying the history of the church and seeing how persecution arose against the early church in Acts and all through church history. The very first step in the method or bringing about persecution is stereotyping the target group. And let me just explain what that means. To stereotype means to repeat without variation, to take a quality or observation of a limited number and generalize it to a whole group. It involves a simplified and standardized concept or a view of a group based upon observation of a limited sample size. So they look at a few, they draw conclusions, and stereotype the whole entire group. Let me give you an example. There was an obnoxious church down in Florida called Westboro Baptist Church. Not there, not for them, not going to support them. But how many media outlets looked at their Christianity and said, all Christianity looks this way. They're all obnoxious in the exact same manner as these few individuals. And they were all family members. The sample size was so small that it was all family. But all Christians are like this. And that's the way they televised it to the world. That's the way they sold it. That's the way they spun it. That all Christians look like this. Um, In fact, They're the only Christians I know that look like that. But that's stereotyping the target group and preparing for the next portion of the progression to persecution, and that's vilifying the target group for alleged crimes or misconducts. As the stereotyping grows in intensity, Christians who did not toe the line in the Cultural Revolution were described as closed-minded, Harmful to human dignity and freedom, listen to this, intolerant, hateful, bigoted, unfair, homophobic, reactionary, and just plain mean and basically bad people. Oh, now it's starting to sound a little bit more familiar, doesn't it? I would venture to say that many would describe Christians with those words. That many of us, many of them, would just simply throw us into one of those defined buckets without even considering who we are. The third step in the road to persecution is marginalizing the target group's role in society. Having established the untrue premise that the church and the faith is very bad, even harmful to human dignity and freedom, the next stage seeks to relegate the role of the church to its margins, meaning, that, meaning make them absolutely irrelevant in the process of governing within our country. We don't even want the Christians to have a say any longer in what happens at an authoritative level in our nation. We don't even want that anymore. We want to marginalize Christianity to the point where it's completely irrelevant. We don't need it. Just get rid of it. It is hindering the progressive ideas and motion of our society. Stage four of the road to persecution then is criminalizing the target groups or its works. Criminalizing it. 
making it illegal to say certain things that the Bible says because it is a hate crime. Sound familiar, guys? Is it getting your attention yet? And then after criminalizing such actions, they then go to persecuting the target group outright and once said this, the current trend, if the current trend continues, Christians, especially religious leaders, may not be far from enduring heavy fines and jail time. The road to persecution, it doesn't start automatically. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a gradual progression to that point of being in favor with the people to the point of being persecuted by the people. And I believe we are on that road. But so were the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 1. They have been in Egypt now for about 100 years, and they entered into Egypt with 70 people, and now they are about 2 million strong. In 100 years, from 70 people initially entering into Egypt, they are now about 2 million there in Egypt. A formidable demographic, to say the least, amongst the populace there in Egypt. And as the political climate changes and those who are in power change, the the remembering of a man named Joseph is forgotten. And as a result, these people, these two million people, are seen as a liability and a threat and a grave potential danger to the natural security of the nation of Israel. So what do you do with them? What do you do with them? As we begin chapter 1, we find the reason for the persecution. And the first reason for the persecution was the fact that they were simply fruitful. That doesn't only mean that they were fruitful in the number of them, but they were also fruitful in what they did. They had a significant economic impact upon the nation of Egypt. They were a formidable force. They were a demographic that needs to be taken into consideration before any further decisions are being made. What do you do with such a demographic? But because of their fruitfulness, they are persecuted. Let's begin in verse 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man of his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, all who were the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them." So already, as we are picking up the narrative, we find that the narrative continues even before this point. And as we come out of the tail end of Genesis, we find that significant things have happened through the 12 sons of Jacob. And I'm just quickly going to remind you of the backstory that the youngest Joseph was favored by God over them, the other brothers, gave him a dream that one day he was going to be great amongst them all. Joseph, in his enthusiasm comes back and tells his older brothers that he's going to be favored amongst them. Hey, trust me, don't do that to your older brothers, okay? Older brothers don't seem to like that. And so they came to the conclusion that they needed to do something. Threw him in a pit. He was picked up by 
those who were traveling into Egypt. He was uh, taken into slavery. He was found then in the house of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, even though he had been completely faithful to Potiphar. He was then arrested, finds himself in jail. And while in jail, he, he gives interpretation to dreams that individuals are having. One of those who has one of those dreams comes out. Pharaoh then has a dream that he cannot interpret. The individual is close to Pharaoh and says, there's one in prison. He can give you that interpretation. And giving that interpretation, then Pharaoh understood the value of Joseph and made Joseph second in command there in all of Egypt. We just did the last half of Genesis in five minutes. But the relationship between Pharaoh and Joseph died with them. And the favoritism that Joseph experienced, especially when his brothers came out of the land due to a famine, found themselves in Egypt, not knowing that they were standing before their brother Joseph at that moment, found sanctuary, refuge in Egypt, and Pharaoh allowed it because of Joseph's sake. But when that relationship died and that generation died, a new ruler came in and now viewed the two million Jews that were living in Egypt as a problem. It's amazing that in political circles, how, how things change as one administration goes out and the other administration comes in. It's also amazing how fast things can change, isn't it? But it's been going that way ever since the time of the Bible. And here we are. The people are fruitful. Pharaoh is concerned about what he is seeing. And in the wake of the fruitfulness of the people, Pharaoh's second reason for persecution is found in fear. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Now come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Fear. Fear can be an incredibly powerful motivator, can't it? Have you ever done anything out of fear that you later regretted? You did something in the emotional wake of fear and out of fear you did something and then you regretted it later because you didn't think it through you weren't objective etc pharaoh now is coming to a conclusion that this is a problem and we have to deal with it let us deal shrewdly with them let us turn this table that appears to be a liability against us let it turn it for us because we don't want to lose them that's what he's saying here because if they join our enemies and fight against us and they leave the nation, we are going to regret it. Now, what was the influence? What did the nation of Israel uh, bring to the table that they didn't want to lose? Well, many historians believe that because Israel was there, Egypt was being blessed. Specifically, historians have discovered that during this time was one of the most prosperous times in the nation of uh, Egypt's history. For economic reasons, we don't want these people to leave, so how can we turn the tides back in our favor? 
And this then results to the point that they come to the conclusion that the only way we can do this is to oppress them and to enslave them. One commentator wrote, Pharaoh needs to maintain the Israelites' presence as an economic asset without thereby jeopardizing Egypt's national security. Now, in the midst of all of this, we know that God is in control. And God is bringing about his purposes. And God is setting the stage for a departure, a deliverance that the world has never seen since of a nation leaving another nation in such a miraculous way. But now, because of the reasoning of fruitfulness and fear, we come to the result, which is persecution. And Pharaoh's decision is now to enslave the people of God to enslave them, to build storehouses for Egypt. Now, think of the reasoning. Pharaoh is concerned about the economic impact against Egypt if they leave. So the best way to prepare for that departure is to build storehouses so when Egypt or Israel does leave, they are prepared, that they have something to fall back upon. So we're going to oppress them, we're going to enslave them to build us storehouses so that when or if they leave, we are prepared, we are ready, and that's exactly what he does. Look at verse 11 with me. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pythium and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve with rigor. Or that word rigor could also be translated with harshness. Slavery. We're going to oppress the people. Now, this is very common. If you're a student of history, you will find that slavery is the, re- is the result of determined uh, means of control and oppression in almost every single case. We're going to target a group of people, and we're going to enslave them so we can stay in control. Egypt knew that they were teetering on the fact that they no longer may be able to remain stable in their social uh, demographic and their social uh, means, so they had to enslave the people. Now, I have to tell you something that's really been on my heart lately, and I believe that this passage, this text, allows me to do so. I would love to believe that slavery no longer exists in our world. I would love to believe that, but do you know that it is on the rise every single year? And now it has morphed into something that all of us have heard about, but very few of us know about. And we really, very few may know the facts about it, and that is human trafficking. I'm appalled as a Christian when I witness or read or hear about human trafficking in our world. And then I remember that there were men in the body of Christ that God seemed to just prepare and to, uh, and to call to withstand these atrocities. 
and one of those who happens to be one of my heroes in the faith, William Wilberforce. Every time I think of this man, who was frail in medical condition, he was sick constantly. But when he was exposed to the truths of slavery, he could not sleep at night until he did something about it. He wasn't going to stop the fight. Now, are all Christians meant to fight as William Wilberforce did? No, I don't believe that. But we are all to be aware. We should not have our heads in the sand. We shouldn't just read about human trafficking and just go about our day as if it was just another story in the paper. It should at least move you and I to a moment where we put the paper down and we begin to pray that God would raise somebody up like a William Wilberforce in this day to counteract these atrocities in our time through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it was the freedom of God and the freedom of Christ that moved William Wilberforce to do what he did, to stand as boldly as he did in the floor of Parliament. And after seeing one of the slave ships for himself, at the end of his speech on the floor of Parliament where he looked to abolish slavery there in the British Empire, this is what he said as he was being rebutted and he was being ridiculed by those who were profiting from slavery there in the Parliament of England. He said this to those who were ridiculing him. He says, I confess to you, sir, so enormous, so dreadful, so irredeemable did, the, did its wickedness appear, that is, the, the slave ship, that my own mind was completely made up for the abolishment of slavery. A trade founded in iniquity and carried on at this was the most appalling and in the most need of abolishment. Let the policy be what it might. Let the consequences be what they would. I would from this time determine that I would never rest until I saw the effects of its abolishment. I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to rest until it's done. That was his heart's cry when he saw the truth for himself. I want to give you some facts about human trafficking because I applaud the Christians who are taking up the mantle to fight it. Let me give you some facts this morning that you may pray about it yourself. And the reason I do this this morning is that William Wilberforce often quoted Exodus chapter 1 in his endeavors. There is an estimate of 2.5 million people that are forced into human trafficking at any given time of the resulting year. 1.4 million of those are out of Asia and the Pacific Rim countries. 161 countries around the world are, appointed, are affected by human trafficking. The majority of these victims are 18 to 24 of years of age. The estimate is 1.2 million children are trafficked each year. 95% of these individuals trafficked experience physical or sexual violence during that trafficking. 43% of the victims were forced to commercial sexual exploitations. 32 of those victims were used for forced economic exploitations. The profits from human trafficking 
worth $31.6 billion. Now, that's an astronomical amount of money, correct? But know that an individual life is only worth about $90. 90 $90. $15.5 of that money, not 49% of it, was generated in industrialized economies. In 2006, there were only 5,800 prosecutions with 3,100 convictions throughout the world. This means for every 800 people trafficked, only one person was brought to conviction. That's a problem. That's a problem. And so I pray that you and I would pray that we would ask God to intervene in this tragedy. Because if you look through the course of church history, often it was the Christians that responded to these travesties because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not not putting the gospel aside, but because of it. I couldn't live, he said. I couldn't continue, Wilbur Wilberforce said, because of this lack of freedom that these men and women and children had. Because he personally had experienced the freedom that the gospel of Jesus Christ provides. He couldn't allow it to continue. So as the numbers grew, even in the weight of persecution, through slavery... Pharaoh knew that he needed to do something more and moved from slavery to extermination. Let's look in verse 15, if you will. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom was, one was named Sephara and the other one Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birthing stools, for if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are more lively. That's an interesting word for labor. Lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty, And so it was because of the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. Let's just stop there for a moment. What Pharaoh couldn't control through slavery, he couldn't suppress the multiplication and how mighty the Jewish people were growing, even under the incredible weight of slavery that was passed upon them. He ordered the midwives, in a bloody decree to kill each of the male children as they were being born. But the midwives feared God. Now there are some elements to this narration that we need to take into consideration. Now we're talking about 2 million people and at least let's estimate 600,000 to maybe 700,000 of that 2 million are women who are able to bear children. Two midwives would be a little hard to keep up with everything, wouldn't it? 
I mean, they would never sleep. They would never go home at night. They would never have a moment. So why only two brought to Pharaoh? And there's some interesting things to take into consideration. Many believe that the Jewish women, most of them, did not use midwives because they could not afford it. And so they would just have home births and, and the husband would be responsible for the delivery. Yeah, I look how the husband's like, thank God it's not that way today. And so the two midwives may be the only two that were employed in that way, possibly. Or somehow, some way, these two midwives represented all the midwives. We don't know. But either way, they feared God more than they feared man, and they saved the male children alive. They did so, knowing full well that the consequences may be their own personal death, but they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And they were obedient to him. And they came back, and we don't know if it was a lie or a partial truth, or maybe the truth, that's saying, listen, before we even get there, they're born. But God blessed them for what they had done because they feared him, and they went the course of the greater good, and they spared these male children. But Since it didn't work, notice with me in verse 22, Pharaoh went then to a national level of extermination. So Pharaoh commanded all his people now, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. He now went at it from a national perspective. And it appears that he was setting his own people against the children of Israel and even having them destroy their own children. Incredible. Incredible edict. Trying to control what God was doing. Completely futile in all of his pursuits. But when we read this, how many of you were appalled to read that someone would ask someone else to kill a child? Were you appalled? You should have been. But I ask you, and do, do I need to remind you that that's happening every single day here in America? Hey, we already touched on one social issue, uh, human trafficking and slavery. Let me get them all out today, okay? That way that we're all clear that we're on the same page. Not only am I absolutely uh, uh, resistant and looking to alleviate human trafficking around the world in any way possible, but I am also as pro-life as they come. And I'm growing concerned that the church in America is beginning to teeter and no longer pursue pro-life means simply because it's now law in our land to allow such things to take place. It may be law in our land, but is it the law according to God? The law of the land says it's right, but does God say it's right? Is it really a matter of choice? Or is that just some label we gave it to make it more palatable that we're killing kids? Think about it, guys. Let me give you some more statistics. You know, get you all fired up today. In the United States alone, in 2008, there were 1.21 million abortions that were done. That's 3,322 per day. When does it become an extermination? Since the inception of the laws to allow abortion, 50 million children in the United States alone have been killed. In 2008, 85% of all abortions were performed on unmarried women. 
In 2012, in the state of Illinois alone, there were 43,203 abortions. 17% of all U.S. abortions are from teenagers who no longer have to tell their parents that they are having an abortion. 35% of pregnant teachers, uh, pregnant teachers, pregnant teenagers have had abortions. In 2006, there were 200,420 abortions amongst teenagers 15 to 19 years old. 40% of women who have had abortions have had at least one previously. Think about this. If we look at this with atrocity and say, how could they kill a child? We better consider what we're doing. Now we know that Satan was working through Pharaoh, looking to destroy and to oppress the one that God would use to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. As Satan tried to eliminate the child that was going to uh, lead the world out of the sin of bondage and death. Isn't it amazing? History repeats itself, right? Pharaoh did it to the Jewish people. Herod did it to his own people to destroy the children. To allow such things to occur is a travesty. They were persecuted. And so when God says, I have taken them, I have brought them out of the land of Egypt, I have brought them out of the house of bondage, now you know what he's talking about. There's a problem. Is there something more that God wants us to see here? Is there something more that he wants to provoke us to? Because I don't know about you, I'm, I'm going to just speak my mind here for a minute, but I think as Christians, uh, many Christians in today's society are getting a little lazy with their Christianity. They're not applying themselves to what God may be calling themselves to. They've resided themselves to say, as long as my old little world is contained, I'm good. And they put the blinders on, and they don't see anything else that's going on around them. They're just consumed with what's happening in their own personal sphere of the world. That's a direct result of existential philosophy. It is what we've been conditioned to believe. We don't want to look around, they don't want us to look around anymore and to say, this is an injustice. This is wrong. God would not have this. And can you believe that the world has done such a marvelous job in their stereotype and vilifying the Christian church that many people in the secular world believe that it is Christians who are looking to uh, bring back slavery? That it's Christians who are the uh, purpose for the KKK and the new KKK of today. That's absolutely ridiculous. Look at history. Read the book. The Bible tells us very clearly it was men and women who God impassioned in their heart. God has called me to be a pastor. To teach and to feed and to love you. But I want to encourage you to pursue a personal prayer life, asking God, use me wherever you may have me. I am so thrilled and this revived passion among young, uh, younger Christians to go out there and to be missionaries, to resist human trafficking, to rescue children that are being sold by their own parents into human trafficking for economic gain. I love missionaries who go in there and buy those children and put them up in a place where they can be loved and the gospel can be given to them and they can be cared for by a tender hand. 
That's Christianity to me, guys, where the gospel is being made manifest in my personal life day after day after day. Am I, am I saying that we should only be concerned about social justice? Absolutely not. We are missioned to carry the gospel into all the world. That's our commission. But that being said, let me ask any one of you who's a Christian man here today, if you were a missionary in another world and you saw a woman being raped, would you step in to stop it? I would. Does that mean that I'm laying the gospel down because I'm trying to correct a social injustice? No. It's because my conscience will not allow me just to sit back and witness such a horrific event. Yeah, I I just, I I don't know, guys. I mean, have we lost our perspective? Have we lost our purpose? I am so impressed by these two women, these midwives, who are willing to lay it all on the line they're nobody in the grand scheme of things, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. But what they did is they looked at a huge atrocity, such as slavery. They looked at a huge atrocity, which was the extermination of the male children. And what they did, the way they responded, is the way I would like all of you to respond. I can't do everything, I can't do everything about everything, but I can at this moment what I am personally responsible for, I can make a difference by obeying God rather than obeying man. It came down to that moment. And as that child was being birthed and it was held in the midwife's hands, she had a decision to make, didn't she? Am I going to obey God or am I going to obey man? And she chose to fear God and to obey God and to save that child alive. And how did God view it? He was pleased. He blessed them. The God of all the universe saw the tender hands of this midwife, saw the decision in which she made to to honor her God. That's what I'm looking for you to do. This problem of human trafficking is so huge. It's so big. What could I ever do? What can you do? Don't let it be a question of moving you to indifference, meaning it's such a big problem. What can I do about it? That's indifference. When you see such a big problem, say to yourself, what can I do about it? I can pray, right? I might educate myself to find out what exactly is going on. And if I feel led of the Lord, maybe I can help and support a missionary that is fighting the battle on the front line, right? We can do that. When it comes to abortion, same thing. It's such a big problem. It's the law of the land. What can I do about it? What can you do about it? You can pray. You can educate yourself. You can fill a baby bottle full of your loose chains so we can support a ministry that is on the front line helping these ladies make informed choices. Right? Because that's what it's about, right? The other side told me it's all about choice. Now I'm saying, good, let's make an informed choice. Let's look at it that way. What can I do? And I do it not to, not to lay the gospel aside. I do it because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think I read somewhere, I'm supposed to be salt. I'm supposed to be light. Let us be salt and light. But understand that this slavery that we see and we're so repulsed by, the death that we see about abortion and so repulsed by, do you know that's happening every single day spiritually? 
that men and women who are not in Jesus Christ are under the weight of oppression and uh, of sin and of death. They are slaves to it, and it's the ruler of this world that is their taskmaster. And as we are repulsed by the death of a child, we should be equally repulsed by the fact that individuals are dying and are separated from God for all eternity. And you and I have the answer, and that answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came to save us from death, from sin, to break the bondages that those things have over us, to give us a new life in Him. And though we may die physically, we live with Him for eternity. It's the gospel that is the true cure to all of these woes. And we know that one day a new heaven, a new earth will be created, and these things will never, ever exist again. But does that mean we as Christians just sit back in our easy chair, let the cable TV wash over us, get all fired up about non-essential, non-important things that nobody's going to remember next week? Or do we take a step of faith and say, Lord, I am nobody, but if you can use these midwives, you can use me. And you saw what they did, Lord, and you honored them for what they did, Lord. Can you imagine getting to heaven and meeting that dear woman and she introduces herself, hi, I'm Pua. I always wanted to meet a Pua. And to know that her name is encapsulated in the annals of biblical history for a decision she made when probably nobody was watching. Her own conscience governing her at that moment and yet to discover because she feared God, God was watching and saw the whole thing and gave them a household and blessed them and recorded their names in the scripture. To me, that's, that's incredible that our God is that attentive to what happens. Please don't be like a deist who thinks that God is not involved in the daily affairs of man. He is actively involved in the daily affairs of man. But it all began with persecution. And knowing this today, and as we ramp up to chapter 20, and as we look at these chapters and see how God delivered them from Egypt, how God freed them from the bondages of slavery, when he gives them the Ten Commandments, he is giving them these commandments that they may be his people. This is what's going to identify you to the world. This is it. We have to be different. If we are just like the world, we are not going to be effective in the world whatsoever. We must be different. We must be different. Set aside for the purposes of, the God, of God and for the glory of his kingdom as we carry the gospel of Jesus Christ into every aspect of our personal life. Even in the wake of persecution. Let us be compassionate today for those who are being persecuted for it might be us tomorrow that is under that same wave of persecution.